It's Monday, August 23rd. You are listening to LA Podcast. This is episode 188. Good Newsome for people who love bad Newsome. I'm forcing that title upon us because I have a feeling that we are all going to be floating on in the near, <laughs> in the next couple of weeks. Your ears uh, do not deceive you. I am Scott Frazier. I was out for a couple of weeks on paternity leave, but in the words of Jay-Z, I cannot leave podcasting alone. The game needs me. I am here this morning with Alyssa Walker and Matt Tinoco. We were going to be joined by Rachel Reyes, who's taking a well-deserved break instead in magical Santa Barbara County. So we hope that she's having a very pleasant weekend off. Guys, how are you? How has your week, your past several weeks been? I mean, nothing really compares to your past several weeks. So oh, we'll get into that later. Yeah, I don't think there's really anything we can say that could top that. <laughs> the creation of a human. All good. All uh, We're all present and accountable. Nobody has endured any significant <laughs> loss of brain cells or anything. I felt like this week online on Los Angeles Twitter was particularly mind erasing. There was a lot going on. Uh, well, today is Friday, I guess we should say, and it was a torrent. It was a hydrant of tweets. It was um, Sauron's eye of the internet was trained directly on Los Angeles. Anyway, um, we have big news for everyone this week. Some of you might already be aware of it, particularly if you do follow us on social media at the LA Pod on Twitter or Instagram, or if you're a subscriber to our Sepulveda Pass. The news is that we are launching a new weekly newsletter, and that is called LA Newsletter because we do not subscribe to search engine optimization whatsoever. Um, at least, I, as far as I'm aware, La Newsletter is not how you say newsletter in Spanish, unlike La Podcast. So um, we got a little bit of a break there. That is going to be delivered every Saturday starting with this past weekend, actually, as you're listening to it. The first week issue did come out on uh, this past Saturday. So we urge everyone not to miss out. You can subscribe by going to thelapod.com slash newsletter, thelapod.com slash newsletter. Matt, you have been responsible for putting this product together. What should people expect from it? People should expect things that you're not going to find anywhere else, which is me, a trained professional reporter, picking up the phone, making calls, and trying to answer not just your questions, but also my own questions and Alyssa's questions and Scott's questions about Southern California. And then you're also going to expect to see writing from both Scott and Alyssa, um, just sort of columns, reporting, and we're going to play it a little bit by ear. But what the whole point is going to be is that you can expect like actual news, like stuff that I don't want to say it again, but that's the whole kind of important point is that you're not going to find this sort of coverage anywhere else in Los Angeles at any of the, like this many other media outlets out there. So like the very first newsletter, we're talking a little bit more about the sort of opaque process that's going into deciding whether or not there is going to be or isn't going to be a permanent fence at Echo Park Lake, as well as a little bit more about uh, actually what you'll hear in this episode about Metro's uh uh, you know, attempts or I don't know the the fare free fare free fare free pilot for K twelve students and community college students, as well as a couple other little goodies that you're only going to find by going and and you know subscribing. So original newsletter right in your inbox uh, wherever you subscribe on Saturday morning, 
Uh, it's intended to be sort of a, you know, a, a nice like weekend read. Like we're not responding to the news cycle um, and everything in there is original enterprise. And, and like, I don't know, earnestly trying our best to figure out what, you know, we're, we're a small group here, but besides just the people that are on mic right now, you're going to find uh, as we grow our, like our, you know, whole operation here, you're going to find that we're going to be able to commission original reporting, much like, like stuff that hasn't been said before, but like it's happening for real now. Like I'm very yeah. excited about some of the stuff that we're going to be publishing out here over the next couple of months because it's happening and it's relevant and um, hopefully it uh, makes some waves. That's what I'm very excited to do. Ultimately, you know, it'll be in people's brains all weekends. And, you know, when they show up on Monday after they listen to our podcast, that's- This is our Yeah, you get the notes to prepare you to hear the podcast. Yeah. And to prepare you for the week to come. This is our yeah. counter to you always being behind the news cycle. Uh, We're which, leading it, <laughs> which is the cur- the curse of of being a weekly roundup podcast. Uh, and yeah, like you're saying, Matt, this is part of an expansion that we've planned and talked about for quite some time now, and we're really happy to actually be kicking off a lot of this now. So the newsletter is one of a variety of new products we're going to be putting out. And so I'm, I'm happy to, that we're spending a little time at the top of this episode just just prefacing all of that so you know what's coming. Um, but also we just want to really underscore the fact that. As independent media, everything that we're doing is supported by and funded by listeners. So if you can, we would love your support. $5 a month helps you uh, keep us going. That's like the cost of a latte each month. You it's, can, it's less than what you probably spend on all of those streaming services that you listen to. Absolutely. And um, so what we're looking for is just a couple of dollars a month that helps us keep going and will actually help us expand the programming that we have. So sign up at patreon.com slash LAPodcast or by clicking the support us link on thelapod.com. We also want to do a thank you shout out to everyone who signed up already and our newest subscribers, Nicholas, Hannah, and Emily. So... That's so nice. Before we get to the headlines of this week, let's do our LA stories. Alyssa, you have something to say about golf carts. That's just, that's actually a sentence I've said before. I, do. I always have something to say about golf carts. When have you not thought me thought about me when you thought about golf carts? So I don't know if you saw, we didn't really talk about the census, the latest census data dump that came out at the end of the week last week. So um not surprisingly, I think to anybody who, you know, looks at the census data every year, the Villages is the fastest growing metropolitan area in the country for the entire decade. So it's had a few years where it was number one. Alyssa, I'm a Californian. I don't know what the Villages are. I was just about to explain it. <laughs> Thank you. Matt, um, it is a master planned retirement community in Florida. Um, just kind of right in the middle there. Um, <laughs> it is larger than the island of Manhattan, if you want to just think about the size. Whoa. But it only has uh, 130,000 people living there, up from like 90,000 at the beginning of the decade. So it's growing both in size and in population because it just acquires land from the nearby cities. They just give them, sell them land because they get the tax, you know, revenue and they can also put their 
natural gas pipelines. I'm making the weirdest face right you, now. I love your face. That is a lot of information for me. to. I had never heard of this place before. What? Oh, I don't it's, know. Okay, well, Florida. the one thing that, that I think it gets everybody really excited is that um, a third of all trips in this city are mm-hmm. made by golf cart because everybody has these amazing, <laughs> like tricked out golf uh-huh. carts that they use to play golf. There's 50 golf courses, but also um, to just go anywhere. You can just tootle around the little town. There's like four villages right. and they're all themed and it's like Disneyland for, or sorry, Disney World. This is Florida that we're talking about. Uh-huh. For, Isn't it just Disney over there? It's everything is, di- they did actually use Disney <laughs> designers to design it, of course. So Wait, really? Yes, of course. Oh my God. I think you have to in Florida. It's a rule. My, I can't process this. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is too much. He's like, am I sleep deprived? And I'm really believing this for my new work. So I'm, I'm looking at those results, writing a story. And on Sunday, we go to the beach and we took the um, expo line to Santa Monica. So fun. So easy with kids. The journey is part of the adventure. And I'm waiting to get food and somebody drives by in a golf cart and I'm like, that. yeah. I was like, this is how it should be because in Santa Monica, the streets are so safe. You like go, It's like going to a different country. When you cross over the border on the expo line, you're like, am I in Austria? I mean, uh-huh. you just have a different vibe. And I was like, yes, people should be using these to get around. And there is some legislation from the beach cities, which is, I'm going to get, it's like the skag of the beach communities. What's it called? I don't even know what it stands for. In the South Bay Cities Council of Government. So like Manhattan Beach, Redondo, all those places, right? So they are passing legislation to have these like low-speed vehicle corridors Mm -hmm. that you can use to get around and you don't have to be on the same paths as cars. Places in like um, the Palm Springs area also have them, some of the cities out there, like... Golf cart streets. Golf cart streets. Yeah, I don't. There, you can call them neighborhood electric vehicles, but not all of them are electric. Some okay. some still run on gas. Um, but you call them like low speed vehicles, or but if the crazy thing is, a lot of places in suburbia use these. They people just have them as like their second car right. just to get around like suburban neighborhoods. Like I, don't, I just I know people that are like in yeah. like suburban Colorado who have these. This is, it's interesting too. I know one of the big things in the South Bay is the the overwhelming, I mean, it's happening across Los Angeles and the country, but in particular in the South Bay, they've seen such an overwhelming aging of the population yes. that the I know that that has been one of the reasons why they're looking at golf carts as a way, way to get around. Totally. And obviously no one should have to drive a car if they don't want to, but like this offers a great opportunity, I think, to really rethink a road beyond just like a bike lane and a bus lane and a car lane, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but to just have the kind of separation of speed, which I think is really important. And I looked across the ocean and was like, over there is the best golf cart community we have on Catalina Island as a Mm. model. They have like cute little, um, like a, they have like a Vons that open there. Cars. Yeah, they have like little like, they have these cute little like parking lots for their <laughs> But So I just think this is an idea that we should take from the villages, not the part where it's like a um, Republican um, Trump supporting stronghold. Sure, expropriate all the golf, car, all the golf courses as land, but then mandate use of golf carts. <laughs> is what I'm hearing. Like how does the street look? Like how, what's that? 
it's. I know Florida have, likes very big streets, yeah. kind of like we have, but like. Well, the thing is that it kind of like upset me when I, when I looked into it is it's not really a car free community. Mm-hmm. Everything still has parking lots for regular cars, and even the houses are designed with a golf cart garage and a regular garage so you can have both okay. you can really have it all now you're losing me um, <laughs> so it's that in that way it's not the ideal situation compared to something like avalon which is really technically car free and you sure. can't like have a vehicle so um there but they do have like grade separated paths they have like all these bridges that go over the interstate so you can see like these like golf carts like zipping you're like driving underneath and there's all these like little golf carts zipping you know back and forth so they have separated infrastructure but also i think like a lot of it is golf courses and other like recreational type areas so and residential you know so it's not it would be it, it can be master planned for this use originally it's harder maybe to retrofit um you know, which is what we would have to do, but we I mean, will. We will. The, by by building a bridge above every street for the golf carts, <laughs> it'll just be not like pedestrian removing, walkways. Sure. But the like state will pass the, legislation yeah. before you remove a car lane to make it a golf cart lane. So, <laughs> yeah, and then we'll get down the line. It. We'll we'll make it legal to run people over in your golf cart if they're protesting, Matt. <laughs> What uh, what did you do this week? Tell us about your swimming experience. Oh, this is just very low stakes, but there's a myriad of public pools all over Southern California, and I've been taking advantage of the pools in the city of the fine city of Burbank. Mm. They have a pair of public aquatics facilities that are just lovely and convenient to me, and sort of where my own geography is. But also, I wish I could go to the city of Los Angeles's pools, but like there's. There's, they're, they're just not, there's a lot of pools that are technically in custody of the city of Los Angeles, but they're just not open. Like they're, they're like not even for pandemic reasons, they're just not maintained. So they're like empty or like closed for repairs. And this is just a, a disappointing, you know, I'd love to go to, you know, a city of LA pool of which I live near a couple of them, but they don't have water in them. And it's very unfortunate. And Valley College is not yet offering uh, lap swimming. So I can't go there either. So thank you. Burbank. And that's, it's just that. That's the entire story. It's nice to go in the water. I used to swim when I was a kid a fair amount. And I, then I stopped and then there were the Olympics and I was like, oh, right. I used to like this. Um, so and this is, this is under the purview of Reckon Parks, would it be for the city of yeah, Los it's Angeles? Recreation. It's Reckon Parks. Well, we've been hearing a lot about how significantly understaffed they are and everyone that they employ apparently is just patrolling Echo Park Lake. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so, or, or got laid off in the recession. So. Or got laid off in the recession. Their, their pool maintenance crew haven't been around since yeah, 2008. Yeah, it's been really rough for, um, uh, you know, we took our swim lessons, which were are free because you, you couldn't get your kid to... Um, learn to swim for free through the city program. But there's so few pools open this summer that you can't get into any of the lessons. Everything's like really overcrowded. And so we weren't able to get into swim lessons. Um, and then our go-to pool, the Griffith Park pool, I don't think it's open still. It hasn't been open the entire The summer. one like by the five in Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. I don't, the one where it's you're not. like swimming on the freeway. Yeah. Oh, there's a couple of those. <laughs> <laughs> like the final lap is actually like the exit. <laughs> Um, what a what a fun ambient experience just, that must just, be. Just existing in the water, <laughs> sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the evening with my, the Burbankians. My LA story is uh, predictably is about um, my my wife Sarah and I giving birth to our first 
baby, welcoming our, our baby girl, Ida, to our family. We're very, very excited about it. I just wanted to talk a little bit. I've kind of been updating listeners throughout this journey, um, just the whole process of expecting a child during COVID has been pretty interesting. We had a lot of up and down experiences with the hospital system ex- itself. Of course, earlier in the pandemic, things were completely shut down. Hospitals were completely overwhelmed. Um, even at the beginning of 2021, that was still the case. In the spring, as vaccines started rolling out and everything, I was finally able to start attending some of the prenatal appointments, which was exciting for me. I was um, feeling pretty shut out of the entire thing, uh, the, the so whole process, and, it, and that was hard. Um, and so we gave birth actually at the perfect time, Kaiser in Kaiser Permanente and in Hollywood, at the perfect time to re-enter a period of strict protocols for the Delta variant. Um, so I was actually, I mean, thank goodness, I was actually able to be there. I don't know if they would ever have gone that far. But the way that they're doing it currently is um, if you're in labor and delivery or the postpartum ward, uh, as we were, you are limited in who is actually able to come in. And the people that do come in um, for labor and delivery, you're technically allowed to have two people on the, the wing uh, right now. Uh, they are not allowed to leave. So, um, so you are there for the duration. It's like being at a really trendy nightclub, no re-entry. <laughs> if you if you are there and you leave, you're done for the rest of the time. <laughs> so um, so of course, nobody could actually come with us um, because that's just it's a little bit too unpredictable and and the requirements are just a little bit too onerous for anybody to be able to uh, meaningfully help us out during that during that period. So I was there. Uh, with Sarah, we had a really good experience. Everyone was very um, was very helpful to us. The nurses, in particular, were phenomenal and and gave us so much support. Um, living in a hospital room, literally in a room, because you just like can't go anywhere during COVID, is very strange. I will say. And I mean, think how Sarah felt. Yeah, I know. Oh <laughs> no, God, I've been. <laughs> She really couldn't leave. I really, I, I have thought of very little else. It was, um, it was, it was tough. I mean, she came out of that day of being like, "Oh, everything was so great. Everything was so wonderful." Aww. I was like, "Oh, this was a very long day for me." Um, at least, at least, you know, she got her epidural. Everything was fine. Everyone is healthy. Uh, when we got back home, we've had a lot of help and support from friends and family. So, um, you know, it's been a fantastic experience, and I'm. So glad to be back here talking to you both about it. It's it's it feels good to be back. We cannot delay any longer. We have to talk about the news of the week. Headlines. Uh, we we want to go into the the not necessarily the biggest, but some of the most we feel important stories that are going on this week. Um, so we want to start with some City of LA news. Streets Blog LA last week was reporting on the City of Los Angeles's complete streets program. What was what was the news that came out of about the City of LA's complete streets program last week, Alyssa? So this was a transportation committee meeting um, for the uh, City Council. 
um, and they were approving so-called uh, complete streets recommendations for parts of Culver Boulevard, which is like West L.A., which would be like West L.A. into like the Venice area, like kind of by there. Yeah. And then La Brea Avenue and Highland Avenue, which is kind of a, a you know, a parallel pathway, but, you know, it's a few blocks over. And the recommendations are for making these streets, which are all quite wide yeah. and quite car centric to balance the needs of all the users in a better way, both by um, separating the space out and um, also creating some dedicated pathways. So say busways, bikeways, fixing the sidewalks and widening them, making it more pleasant, say for bus riders to wait at um, better improved bus stops. Um, and then of course it always improves the experience for the drivers too, because they have a, a better, more predictable path of movement, I think. And, yeah. and it does actually, you know, help, it really does help everyone. Although many people see it as taking space away from cars. Right. Complete streets. These are, I mean, like just in terms of transportation planning, it's sort of, I mean, it's one of those terms like road diet or whatever, but like the, the, so it's sort of branding, but the complete streets elements of road design are looking at ways to take, I mean, La Brea or Highland are very good examples of this, a street where uh, basically all of the space on the road is dedicated to cars driving or being parked there. And if you want to walk or uh, get around on a wheelchair or ride a bicycle, you are pushed into these very dangerous margins. So, um, is that, I mean, generally speaking, is that a fair description of what LA's Complete Streets program is attempting to do? Is that is that what they do with this I would money? say, yeah, I would say that is maybe a goal. And also it is the plan of the mobility plan, which was passed. Um, In and, 2017, and it's right? it's supposed to be, uh, you know, being implemented every time a street gets improved to look at these corridors and create, they're all part of this uh bigger strategy for, you know, moving buses through certain places, creating these bike networks. But what we find happens quite often when these um, projects come up for recommendation is that the plan is not uh, implemented as was voted into, you know, existence. Um, the so mobility plan is is a legal document. It's like it's it's the city's, it's part of the city's general plan. And it says... Uh, these are the things that the city of Los Angeles is going to do whenever it basically whenever it works on projects in these areas. There's been a lot of contention about the fact that the city of Los Angeles doesn't seem to be doing that. Things like bike lanes, bus lanes, um, which some of the more car-oriented city council members, including Paul Koretz, um of the the fifth district in the, on the west side. Uh, opposed to the mobility plan on the basis of some of those improvements are just not getting done anyway. So like now we're talking about these particular streets and they're just going to sort of remain as is. It, I guess it is kind of contentious to say that LA's complete streets program is actually building complete streets. It makes me, it kind of reminds me also that I imagine a lot of the components that actually get done in these complete streets are not actually part of the mobility plan, but are also relevant to the Willits settlement, which is 
the the settlement that LA had to do because they weren't maintaining their sidewalks and then also like ADA access on curbs, which like when I see streets being redone, nobody touches the car lanes. Like the car lanes remain. Maybe you get a bike lane if there is space. Rarely will the city actually remove a lane and put in a bike lane. But like the thing that does seem to happen very often is that the 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 ramps the like the the ADA ramps at the intersections seem to do get done in in these instances but that's about it which is like that's obviously a very important thing but like it's not it's very different than like striping down a bus lane and it's like it kind of asks is this about is this a complete street or is this just we're actually fulfilling the obligations of a legal settlement that we are supposed to be doing which yeah, I'm like I don't, what do you think I don't even know if that is Part. I mean, yeah, maybe they're, maybe I'm not, wrong. I, I, I'm sure they'll they'll do that, but uh, you know, maybe they'll fix it. I can give you the example of a a street that is called a complete street, but it is not the Temple Street project, which Matt and I have both written about in in depth. But it was exactly this. It was proposed as a complete street. There were these beautiful renderings of of all these things, like improved. Uh, bus stops and a bike lane and um, like even like, you know, better like landscaping and uh, even like bioswales, like these types of things that would, you know, uh, break up the pavement a little bit to make it like a more pleasant place to get around. And it's technically a complete street project. You can look on LADOT's website and it says that they did this, but not a single part of the roadway changed. They just put some paint there are speed tables. So speed bumps or there speed, speed tables. speed tables, yeah. They are, there are some speed tables. I would not argue that that does, is not a complete street uh, tool because if the street was designed better, you wouldn't need speed tables to try to slow people down. But it is innovative for us. But you look at the street now and it's exactly the same. All they did was fix the curb ramps. And I think there's a couple of left turn signals, right? There, but I mean, again, that's, that's like a car sign. infrastructure. Yeah. It, so there's absolutely nothing that improves it for anybody except for drivers. And there's some, you know, just paint and questionably improved curb ramps. Also, I would mention. So what comes out of what comes out of this transportation committee? What what do people look for? Now, what has changed based on the uh, Transportation Committee's action? I mean, exactly what kind of what we were just saying. They are proposing that they are going to make a complete streets project. I'm making air quotes with my fingers without fundamentally and you know tangibly changing the roadway. They 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 believe that they can like add these improvements without taking away space from cars or you know increasing the um, space that other modes get. And then there's a, a battle kind of between if we can add a bike lane or a bus lane, and I guess we're not allowed to have both on the same street. So how are we balancing the the needs of users that on seems this to complete be a, street? That seems to be a, a lie promulgated by the LADOT at basically every opportunity. You can't have bike and bus lanes coexisting. Uh, you, you certainly don't see it happening here, although there are, there are many examples. I think of it worldwide. I mean, <laughs> it just seems sort of like a, a case where the state has already come in and said that uh, you, you used to have to do environmental review for things like bike lanes and bus lanes. That was, of course, ridiculous. Now you don't have to do that. Now it seems like the state needs to go further and actually say. If this is in your mobility plan or your your city's general plan, 
that you're going to build bike lanes on La Brea or bus lanes on Sunset, and you're going through and repaving the street here, then you have to do this. Like you can't just ignore it completely. And maybe that's where the state goes next. Well, they remember there was that. Um there was like a Caltrans bill that was supposed to do that anytime Caltrans made an improvement. And it was vetoed. And it was vetoed by Governor Newsom, who was like, we will just put the changes in place at the top level to make sure this happens. Can we get a reaction from Larry Elder on that? Sorry, jumping ahead. Uh, sorry, let's let's go on to our next headline for the week. Uh, we were talking about getting around the city safely this is a, a, a topic now of prominent concern for parents and students. Let's talk about the LAUSD reopening or new school year. Everything just feels like a reopening now. Alyssa, we're going to stay with you because you are the LAUSD parent in the room. Tell us about the first week of school. Well, it was shadowed by a certain council member's announcement, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> right. Um, we've been preparing for this for a long time. So just to update everyone who might not remember exactly the time frame here, we for LAUSD, we did go back at the end of last year for a few weeks um, from about mid-April to uh, mid-June, um, but it wasn't a full day and less than half of the students came back in person. I think a lot of parents just opted out. They said, just, you know, not worth it. We'll just stay home, continue the distance learning and come back for the school year. Most of the kids are back now. Some people could opt for uh, online only if they wanted to, which is a cool option that they did offer. Um, so there was a lot of excitement and a lot of um, also confusion. I think it was just a, it was a, a, an a experience that I think we could have anticipated to get into the school. And we knew this from going back, but not all parents knew this. You use a little app on your phone it just asks you like, um, you know, safe COVID safety questions and you just have to, um, you have to have a valid COVID test to get in the system to even get in. They, you had to take a baseline test before you went to school. Otherwise they test every week. Are QR codes involved at any of point? Of course. Great. Yes. It generates a fresh QR code for you every day. I was worried. Day. I was yeah. worried they weren't going to be used. Oh yes. Wait, every day yeah. or every week? And I... It's every day. I mean, I wondered why they can't just give you like a card and like the information on the code gets refreshed every day. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it doesn't, It. Do, I don't know why you need to generate a new one. Also people who have older phones or don't have good data plans, like, you know, a lot of people were getting helped in the line that, um, you know, you just it's, it would time you out and there would just be no way to get in. So you have to have a smartphone. I don't know what, if there's yeah. like a manual check-in if you don't have one. Um and then, yeah, people, either you have to send your kid to school with a phone or check them in. So people who have multiple kids are right. sometimes having to go to put different places to take. I mean, it's just, it's not probably the best system and hopefully it'll be, you know, somewhat modified throughout the year because it's, it's a lot. But I would say the second day went completely smoothly and it wasn't that hard to get into school. And I think most people had the hang of it by then. But What the about a day. sticker that just says you tested me? Or how about just like a barcode <laughs> on our children's foreheads that you could scan <laughs> or, you know, just like a, a tattoo. Like an I voted sticker. Yeah. There could be, I mean, you wonder too. They used to take your temperature, so they don't do that anymore. Um, but that took a lot of time as well. So <laughs> it wouldn't have done... Uh, 
any good on that first day of school because we were all standing out in the sun for like an hour and then they would have taken your temperature and everyone would have been rejected. (laughs) 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 But overall, I, you know, like I said, like it's, it's a huge operation. I think they did it really well. And then after the first few days of school, people are getting tested at school and we start to hear some of the numbers. And there's a little dashboard you can go on and you can see which schools have cases. And it shows you not just the number of cases, but also like how it ranks within the community that the school is in and the county as a whole. And you get a letter and a notification sent home if you have a case at your school, which we did on Friday. So, and most parents I talk to have gotten, have one gotten of those. at least one of those for their school. And it doesn't mean they shut down the school or your class. They just notify and quarantine the affected people. Right. So you wouldn't know necessarily unless you knew what class was being affected. Does it quarantine the whole class or just the... It does not. They have them clustered into groups, at least at our school. I don't, I mean, middle school and high school are always different. Yeah. Um, But they have them into, you know, they have assigned seating. And so I think if it was in your little cluster of the room, Mm -hmm. then you would definitely get sent home. And maybe if there was another situation where they like deemed that you were in what they call close contact, you would somehow be... In a weird way, you have like... Contract contact tracing basically going on in the school system. I don't know how much better that makes anybody feel at this point, but yeah, I mean, you know what all the schedules of all the individual kids are. It's true. Like of all the different, they call them like stable groups, right? So they they do know, especially if you're in an elementary school situation. And they had stories about um, in summer school they use the same program to isolate and you know get kids you know out if they tested positive and they didn't have you know, the the rate of testing positive and was lower than you know the community spread so it was they're doing a good job and hopefully it you know it stays this way it's terrifying when you see the numbers come up even though it's such a big school like any number seems like oh my gosh it's such so that's so many cases but then you yeah think of how many kids and you know uh staff that it actually Sure, but it's Could still be, but it's still scary. It's yeah, the first week, right? First <laughs> so it's week. not. It's like the that number is only gonna gonna go up. And of course, we know we have large numbers of students who are uh, unhoused or housing insecure, who are living in poverty, who have potentially, um, you know, autoimmune diseases or other disabilities, things like that. The numbers are. I would say not great, and I mean, it's it's um, it is it's frightening, and and I, I I definitely feel for you and everybody else who's having to navigate this system, which has changed now three consecutive school years in a row. So, yeah. I mean, one thing I will say is having this number, this portion of the LA County population being tested regularly mm-hmm. is going to make a difference. Sure. I think. I yeah. mean that it's so many kids. And staff and families will be able to, if you have an infection, like being passed around in your household, it will get caught in when it might not have if you hadn't been getting tested regularly. But also, you know, again, I'm in this, I sound like I'm happy now, but I'm just in this constant um, state of rage for all these things that, again, our city could have done to prepare 
for the opening of school and which other cities are doing with vaccine mandates for like indoor dining, things like that before they're opening their schools, New York and San Francisco. Um, our teacher vaccine mandate, it's great that it's happening, but it's do- it doesn't have to happen until October. They yeah. could have gotten that started ahead of time. Um, and then again, like there's not really good messaging, I think for the parents, because we also have to scale back our interactions with people mm-hmm. to keep this system going. And yep. I don't think a lot of people are thinking that way. We're all vaccinated now. So we think we're good, Yeah, but it again needs to be the focus on keeping kids in school. And if, if they start shutting down schools, I mean, yeah, it all starts to fall apart again. Right. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the city, the city doesn't really get involved in LAUSD unless, I mean, at least as far as I can tell, unless there's an opportunity to cast some sort of blame on somebody. And that was actually (laughs) something that happened on the first day of school this year. We had uh, council member Joe Buscaino, mayoral candidate and also city council member from the 15th district, Watts, the shoestring annex and the Port Harbor area. um, The Harbor Gateway. Harbor Gateway and held uh, his campaign held a press conference outside of uh, outside of a school to talk in about Hollywood. What, yes, what, uh, what happened this week, Matt? So, if you're a dedicated listener of the LA podcast, you will undoubtedly know a little bit about Los Angeles Municipal Code forty one eighteen, which is the uh, soon to become effective now on September third. That is getting closer and closer. Municipal law that pertains to more or less where and where not a person who, and more or less anybody can sit, lie, sleep on the sidewalk. But of course, it's a law that is targeted at regulating more or less the bodies of the many tens of thousands of unsheltered people who have no other place to exist but the public space and the public right of way, including sidewalks. Um, So also going on, so while... LAUSD district parents are wrangling with QR codes on their cell phones. Councilmember Buscaino holds a press conference in Hollywood in front of a charter school in Hollywood, uh, very close to the the uh, Schrader Bridge home shelter, by the way. So it's within that zone, the, the special enforcement cleaning zone, if you are that in the weeds on this. Um, but Buscaino held the press conference to introduce a new motion uh, to outlaw sit, sitting, lying, or sleeping in the public right-of-way or using public property in the public right-of-way as is uh, the law is, uh, as 4118 uh, empowers the council to do, more or less outlawing all of that within 500 feet of any public school in the city of Los Angeles. That was the, I believe there's over a thousand. I think that it was a, it's a very long list of schools where uh, should the city council pass it, it will become illegal to sit, lie, sleep on the sidewalk. Or if you do a close reading of the ordinance, as of course I have, um, potentially using personal property within 500 feet of a school, which makes me ask a question. It's like, does it mean I can't use my phone if I'm near a school? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but like, I'm sure, you know. The example that I used uh, the last time that we talked about this and particularly salient as we're talking about schools, if you are... Uh, if let's say you're an unhoused student, if you're outside of a school using your textbook, that's public property. I mean, we know how these laws get enforced. It is predominantly a loitering, uh, yeah. a loitering statute, which is intended to give police the ability to move 
or detain or arrest uh, individuals who are unhoused. I mean, strictly speaking, if you are a student who put your bag down on the sidewalk, that uh, violates this ordinance. It by my again not uh, not a lawyer here, but like it appears to be in violation of the ordinance as currently written and as will become effective on September 3rd. So as we've pointed out a little bit in the past, so 4118, it will immediately on September 3rd outlaw sitting, lying, sleeping, or using personal property in only a couple of places, actually. It's not as carte blanche as as I think it's been portrayed in, in some some places. It will outlaw those things in driveways, within 10 feet of a driveway, within five feet of a building entrance, within two feet of a fire department connection. And I believe those are the, I think they're- they're, they're all that happens automatically. Automatically. Without city council intervention. Yeah. So Buscainu's press conference on the first day of school was to propose an action that would, more or less propose a city council resolution that would, with council action, outlaw sitting, lying, sleeping anywhere within 500 feet of a school. And yeah, this was part of, as part of the ordinance, city council said, you can make it illegal to sit, lie, sleep in front of a school or in the vicinity of a school, but only if a city council member has put forward and passed a resolution for that particular school. Joe Buscaino said, great, I'll do that for all of them, please, in bulk. Yeah, there was this mega list of, you saw these people like doing these live scrolls of videos of them. Um, and I think like as a, as a parent, I just got it in my head as I was like walking to school every day of the rest of the week about all the things that were actually impeding my ability to take my kid to school because this mm-hmm. is the this is the argument here that like if there's somebody who's in your way they need to be removed or they're in danger in some way so the non-existent um, crosswalk markings perhaps there's no um, there, there's no uh, crossing guard outside of our school right now, like where mm-hmm. there used to be directing traffic to make sure everybody got across the street safely. Those are gone. I don't know if schools don't have those right now. There's two trees that were never replaced in our tree wells that make it, you know, very hot weight and yeah. we have no shade. Um, the street sweeping hasn't been done in any way on one of the major streets that we cross. Um, there was a, a 311 request I did to try to move like a dresser and some palm fronds off of the sidewalk. They came and took the dresser, but not the palm fronds. These are just like examples of what the streets services should be doing to help people get to school. And I assure you that walking by like the one person parked in an RV or something on our way to school is not the problem, is not, and could possibly be, as you said before, the parent of uh, the school, a a family of the school. And I mean, it just, it just is, it's just so, it's this othering, um, it's a, it's a, it's a tool against it's anybody t- who's who doesn't quote unquote look like they belong. Yeah, in, it's a, a it's a way place. to just be able to say like, oh, you shouldn't be near a school, which becomes like with the the, the discussion we've had also about these signs being put in parks, like you're not allowed to be in a park unless you have a kid with you or something like that. It's very similar to that type of um, you know the, the way that we try to make teach kids you know to point fingers at people and say that person doesn't belong here. We can't do that. 
So the the proposal will now go through the council committee process, apparently. It seems that it's not the Homelessness and Poverty Committee that has jurisdiction over these resolutions, but the Public Works Committee, which has a different makeup and presumably will be uh, an easier process to get that to full council for approval. Now, even if this ordinance or even if this resolution uh, were to be approved, it's, again, not an automatic uh, everybody, you're, you're banned. You're, it, there's there's more procedural steps to enforcing 4118 than even the resolution. So the law as written requires uh, first, it, it requires the posting of signs. So as written, if that ordinance were to, or if that resolution, if Buscayuna's proposal to, you know, outlaw everywhere within a thousand schools, all schools in Los Angeles, it would then require the city to post first post signs in all of those locations. So that's going to be more than a thousand signs because you can't just do it. You just can't. It's you can't do one sign within the entire area. I believe the current um, prevailing wisdom is you have to sign more or less every single like like it's something like every fifty or hundred feet like that. And like they did say they were going to make a million signs. No, but like that's literally <laughs> so so like. Right now, the Los Angeles uses um, signs to mark what are called special enforcement and cleaning zones, which are more or less. Um, it's very kind. Of, those are not even council resolutions. Those it's it's almost more obscure how those things just pop up. But like they're they're marking they're effectively red lines where people cannot be, and those are those are already signed. But it would presumably be something very similar to that. And then, so once the signs are up, then there is a 30-day period where there is like outreach and something and whatever else is conducted um, before at that point, after 30 days, after the signs have actually been up, only then by law is when the police department could come in and actually start enforcing the ordinance. Now there's, which is like the point being for this press conference, I think it's just in my, you know, I guess semi-informed opinion on that. Seeing how Los Angeles has approached a lot of these things in the past, it's unlikely that they'll actually be able to do that, which points to Buscaino using this as a press conference to promote his own name. Like, meanwhile, in the city council, you also have a competing process from the Homelessness and Poverty Committee, from Mark Ridley Thomas, who is one of the key authors behind actually 4118 as written currently, which more or less is advocating for no, we're only going to actually try putting up signs effectively in 15 places around the entire city uh, until the end of the year, more or less giving each council district the space to pick one location in their entire district to actually try 4118 enforcement. And then the there's another motion. It's also in the city procedural process. We'll, I guess, see which one wins. Um, I could not say. But like that will, the, the intention would be that... Uh, the intention would be to flesh out more or less the like out like do the encampment to home. I, there's so many things in this one, so it's like it also differs whether or not there's actually people currently outside in the immediate area. There's different procedures for that, but like if there are people outside in the area where signs are going to po- get posted, then that area under the Ridley Thomas proposal would be uh, the the. Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority's city contracted teams would provide a lot of attention to that specific area and connect them to extra resources. That's not present in the Buscaina proposal. So we have two competing factions, basically. One is saying, uh, although this includes, uh, as you said, co-author of the 4118 language that is now in force, this, this loitering ordinance, 
we have one faction that says we want to limit the application of this for the near future and use these, uh, like basically one site in each district in order to test out the provision of additional services before it comes to enforcement. Then on the other side, you have Joe Buscaino, who is kind of standing on his own right now uh, intentionally. I mean, we can talk about that in a second. Um, but he's kind of he's kind of out there on his own, saying, "No, we need to flood the city with as many of these signage uh, locations as we possibly can." His consultant uh, Michael Trujillo said online that um, that this was only the first of many motions like this. Uh, that being the one with a thousand or more schools listed that they were going to introduce um, in order to get this enforcement blanketing the city, um, and. At this press conference, I mean, we we absolutely have to talk about at the at this press conference. It's quite the conference. Uh, it did not finish as actually happened at a previous Joe Busca, you know, press conference that we discussed, where he was uh, spirited away by his own security because I love describing it that way. Uh, <laughs> I mean, um, he he was he was taken away by security because uh, according to him. There was a threat on his life uh, made by a homeless woman. Police saw or seized a, a knife from a woman who said that she kept it with her to prevent sexual assaults being committed uh, against her. Um, and so that was an earlier press conference this uh, this year that did not come to a, a, a full conclusion. Then the same thing, well, very similar thing happened this time around in which uh, protesters against Joe Buscaino's school enforcement plan um, arrived at and were, pr- were present during his press conference and his director of communications, Brandomir Kovartic, uh, got into a fist fight basically with uh, with some of the people present or was, there was an altercation yeah there was there, there contact was made yeah um, it was not it was not a fist fight um, he was attempting to seize a sign from somebody who was very much uh, in the face of uh, one of the female protesters present and it is not actually the first time that uh, that, that this person has been in such direct altercations with members of the public there was a Another video that was circulating earlier this year of uh, Kovartic getting into it with a street watch protester uh, at um, at a press conference in CD4. So once again, Joe Buscaino was r- removed from the location or just sort of left because it was no longer possible to continue the press conference. What do either of you make of this strategy? Or I mean, I have to assume it's a, it's an it is a, a strategy to generate attention and visibility for this campaign. I was, I mean, you mentioned his uh, consultant who is now uh, loving to just uh, uh, pop into the Twitter conversations of of anyone who dares incites the Twitter conversations. Yeah, it's, it's, welcomes the Twitter yeah, conversations. Is, is is causing some of the conversations. But um, yeah, you have to it's wonder. Very like Pepe the Frog. Lurch roll <laughs> sort of so lame approach to to consultation. Yeah, I mean, um, and and again, like the 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 release itself going out, and it was like you know, don't share this release. It was actually had the wrong date on it. it said twenty twenty, which just like with that attention to detail, how could you not think he would be a great mayor? Um, but it was it just the 
the the stuntiness of it all, right? The first day of school thing, and um, you know, having it around the corner from uh, the bridge home. Um, it does. It just seems like so far this is it, it's a campaign of these like spectacles backed up with like the wackiest interpretation of the policy and the council floor, and then the other council members like are making fun of him and like ridiculing him, like. Ridley Thomas like got on Twitter that day and was like, this is wrong. Like this is, yeah. this is absolutely the wrong approach to this. So I guess that's going to work for him just to, like you said, for the name recognition, but it also makes him look completely foolish and none of it is serving his own district where he is still a council member. Mitch O'Farrell, the council member for the uh, area where the press conference was actually held, uh, his office went far enough to say that we were unaware that this was going to be happening in our district until... Uh, Busca in his office sent out a uh, sent out the uh, press advisory, which just to that. I mean, super cool. I mean, yeah. I don't think the the people knew in Venice either when you know any, any representative or CD four for that yeah, matter I mean, when it's... he showed up. It does seem like uh, the the pugnaciousness is is calculated. I will say one of the things that did not seem calculated to me is you know the the director of communications getting into these scraps. It it is, it's very difficult for me to, I would just say it would be incredibly dumb and reckless for a campaign to actually go out with the intention of instigating a physical confrontation. Because when you do that, you actually have no idea what is going to happen. Even if you set aside, even if you take the cynical line and say, Joe Buscaino's staff never thought he was in physical danger when this knife was present at his previous press conference, which I have no particular insight into, it's possible. Um, even if you even if you take that line, uh, we're mere days at this point removed from a protester actual or a, a counter protester actually being stabbed at a different protest downtown by um, by members of the far right extremist groups that were protesting the the anti-vax or doing protests pro- protesting in favor of anti-vax sentiments and in favor of the Gavin Newsom recall um you really and also there, it's just there's no way to there's no way to control the images that are going to come out of that and in particular the images that came out of this press conference do not look great from Joe Buscaino so I don't particularly buy uh, you know, Trujillo going online and being like, ah, ha ha, you fell into our, our trap. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really it's easy wash. To say after, afterwards. Yeah. It's easy to say afterwards. <laughs> it's, it's also, um, it's also easy to say if, if your job is maybe in jeopardy because. <laughs> and what else did he say? He was like, this is only the beginning. Yeah. That was before, I think that was before the press conference, but yes, he did say that. Um, so I, it was it was a very strange strange week. It was a very strange kickoff to the week, and I think that as the the school year progresses, we're going to um, have to be dealing with a lot more. As you said, Matt, we're we're actually getting into the enforcement of of forty one eighteen, um, and I'm sure that we will have a lot more coverage of how that pans out in, in coming weeks. We do want to get to our listener question for this week. Uh, Matt, walk us through it. What do, what do we have? Uh, yeah, thank you, Scott. So I want to play a listener question from Kindred, who was kind enough to call our phone line, which again is one in the show notes, but the number you can call if you happen to you know have a pencil and pen right now and are ready to go, 
is 323-250-2106. So we're taking a pretty broad net uh, or casting a pretty broad net here and taking your questions just generally about Los Angeles, whether that's history, which was the last one that I did, but this one's going to be about current transportation policy. So this is uh, Kindred, who was kind enough to leave us a voicemail. Hi, LA Podcast Hotline. I think it's so cool that you guys are doing this. What is up with the free public transit that's happening right now in LA? Uh, there's a lot of information about, I guess, the program to make uh, public transit free for students, which is amazing, and low-income folk, which is amazing. But if you actually go on to the, and that's supposed to start in August, uh, but if you go on the website, for example, to enroll your kids, uh, there's no information that still acts as if you're going to have to pay. to Anyway, there's just a lot of conflicting information. There is absolutely a lot of conflicting information on this one. We've talked a little bit about free transit in the past, and I'll just start at the very top by saying effectively right now, transportation uh, in the metro system is free on the buses. Metro operators are not supposed to be asking for fares and there is no fare enforcement in this system. This is the effective policy in Metro, which apparently should be extending to rail. But if you go obviously into the red line or on some of the other platforms that have turnstiles, the turnstiles are still locked. So you effectively either jump the turnstile, use the emergency exit, or you just tap in because that's probably what I'm going to do when there's police officers right there. But to your question about the fare-free Officially, the fare-free pilot program is what it's referred to for K-12 students and community college students. So when I started digging around, I learned some interesting things. What you said that it's supposed to start in August is uh, if you Google it and start looking through press clippings from er earlier this year, in fact, what the public messaging was from a number of members of the board of directors of Metro. Now, remember that the board of directors are distinct. The uh, They're the governing, it's the governing board of Met the Metro agency, which is somewhat distinct from the the staff of Metro, which I think is is part of the confusion that let's try and parse out here. So- when you go through the press clippings from earlier this year, there are a ton of instances where it says, yes, by August, we are going to roll out this pilot program for fare-free transit that is going to extend to all K-12 students in Los Angeles County, as well as community college students in Los Angeles County. Now, in practice, that would effectively work by school districts giving tap cards to students that would grant them access on Metro and then other participating transportation agencies in Los Angeles County because all transit agencies take tap cards. That's not happening, uh, at least not in the scale that was promised earlier this year. And remember that it was promised by the board of directors, not necessarily the metro agency itself, which is relevant to some point. So when you, long story short, when, when you go back to July of this year, I found if you really want to go there, whoever's listening, you can find the executive management committee board meeting for LACMTA Metro. And if you go to about an hour in, there's a presentation on the fare free pilot project where the Metro staff effectively say that, well, we were going to try for August, but it's a little up in the air right now because I believe the effective policy of fare free transit for everybody, not just students, is creating some sort of issue, which I do not know this, and Metro hasn't answered my question as of this particular taping right now. 
asking for clarifying details about what is actually going on inside the agency. It seems like there's probably some massive internal disarray that the public is blissfully unaware about, but I don't have more to say right there. What I can say is that the Fair Free Pilot Program is not currently going on at wide scale in LA County. There are a couple of individual school districts. So like the Culver City Unified School District is doing this. I can't say why the Culver City School District got to participate in this and LAUSD didn't. Perhaps it's because there's more tap cards necessary for LAUSD. And there's there's funding questions and a bunch of other questions that are unanswered that I've asked Metro but haven't heard back from. But like, it's unfortunate that the Fair Free Pilot Program is not currently on target as it was uh, made out to be. So that's the sort of situation. So at some point in the near future, or maybe the less near future, the way it will work is that you, you, it should come from the schools. That is the, if you go back to the July Executive Management Committee, uh, committee meeting, that is the uh, the system that is is more or less the schools provide tap cards to students. So you shouldn't have to go to Metro to try and get the school card. It should just come to you from the schools. But obviously, I asked LAUSD. LAUSD more or less just said we're eager to partner in the future and are looking forward to free transit. And that was the bulk of the statement, which more or less means they also don't know when it's going to happen, um, at least by my read of it. And so... At some point in the future, it will happen, but it's not here yet. So I'm sorry to say that. But also, uh, for the time being, transit is free. So you can just get on a bus, and, or at least uh, it is effectively free. So you can just get on a bus and the operator is not supposed to ask you to tap your fare. And Dash has been free for students, all students, for yeah. a couple of years now. I feel like they've been awesome. And this also just goes back to, you said it, to uh, get a fare card for your kid, which you're supposed to have discounted through if you have a child, a student age kid is a a huge pain. And this goes back to my dream of having one card that is your Metro Metro pass, all buses pass, um, library card, swim rec center card, COVID entry card. What else do we have? Library, did I say? Yeah, just all, just one super card for everything for kids. I think uh, to, I guess, throw Metro a bone because presumably there's somebody at Metro who probably listens to this right now. Um, When you go, so the Fair Free Pilot uh, sort of initiative, as it's called, it originated in September of 2020. And in September of 2020, the original intention of the program was to have uh, the pilot rolled out to K-12 students, not by August of 21, but by August of 22. And so what happened earlier this year is that some members of the board of directors wanted to move the move it forward. And it seems like that was uh, accelerating it in a way that the agency was not prepared to react to. And that's also a part of this. But unfortunately, it's, uh, I have not, you can explain that to me and I'm listening and I would like to, commu- and this is stuff that like should be communicated to the public because practically there's a bunch of people who are wondering if there's free transit for students because when you Google free transit for students, there's many media clippings out there that say in August there's going to be free transit for students and yet here we are right now where there's a couple of small schools, like individual schools and the Culver City Unified School District that are doing it. But most of LA County's uh, six or 700,000 students are not in Culver City, unfortunately. So, And they are riding the bus. You can tell a difference now. You can tell that there's a lot more kids. 
So thank you to Kindred for that question. We hope that we answered you. And anybody at any time can call us at, Matt, what is the number? It is 323-250-2106. I'm so glad we have a 323 number. Just you're, wanted to... you're welcome. I, I selected <laughs> Did it. Did you pick? Yes. Really? Um, and uh-huh. so yeah, get, call us anytime. Let us know what you want to know. And we will continue digging into the answers. Let's get to our big story for this week. People have started getting their uh, their mail-in ballots for the recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom. Everyone is confused. Everyone is anxious. Alyssa is very nervous. I, every I know. day I still ask Scott to reassure me. It's it never is. I don't know if my reassurances are that reassuring anymore, but I know that I am not as worried as everybody else appears to be. And there are very good reasons to be worried. A variety of polls have come out recently showing that there is a very, very slim margin for error at the at the polls for Gavin Newsom. Uh, he is it's showing as plus one plus two in some of the polls uh, underwater in some others. Um, and there are, I think, definitely reasons to be concerned that the yes recall vote will succeed. Let's talk a little bit. I'll, I'll give a little bit of a, a, a preface for our listeners of how recalling works. And then we can talk about how we ended up in this ridiculous, very, very concerning situation that we find ourselves in. The recall powers that the, that the state of California gives to all Californians are, they come from the, the state constitution. It is part of California's uh, historical commitment to direct democracy. And we, we are all well aware of our wonderful ballot measure process that exists at all levels of the state, allowing anybody to introduce a constitutional amendment that can be voted on by voters. It also is in the same spirit that we allow people to vote on what what amounts to a vote of no confidence in major elected officials. Uh, the governor is one of those. And so we have a lot of Republicans in the state of California, just in terms of absolute numbers. Many. There are a lot of them. I know, but... There are, there are a lot of them. You said there weren't that many. But the thing is, they are overwhelmingly outnumbered by uh, by the, the combined numbers of people who are no, registered as no party preference and uh, as Democrats. So that has shifted the balance of power in the state over the course of the past, uh, well, since the previous recall of Governor Gray Davis, which was the, the first successful gubernatorial recall in the history of the United States, I believe. Uh, that was in 2003. Since then, and at, at that point in time, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger became the governor, famously. A, he bills himself now as a third-way Republican, sort of more centrist. But since that time, the state has become significantly more Democrat-powered than it was at the, at, at a, the early 2000s. So when you actually qualify for uh, the, the recall for uh, for an election, it goes before voters and it is an up or down proposition. If you vote yes, you are voting to recall the person who is in office and they no longer have a job. 
if you vote no, you're voting to keep that person in office. So uh, that that is the the first part of the recall ballot. And if we are thinking about it in terms of this Newsom election, it means that 50% plus one of the voters returning a ballot need to say no to the recall in order to keep Gavin Newsom as governor. Uh, any other outcome, and we go to the second part of the ballot, which is who is who is elected as governor in the event that the recall goes forward. If a majority of people vote yes and Gavin Newsom is recalled, then who takes over his position? And this is where it gets really, really, really ugly. Although for uh, the, the vast majority of other electoral contests in the state of California, we have uh, you know, our top two primaries, the so-called jungle primary system, where regardless of party or anything like that, the top two vote getters go to a runoff in the event that no individual gets 50% plus one of the vote. In this case, in the case of a recall, we don't have that runoff at all. So you end up in a situation where dozens, as always, dozens if not more people run for this office. It is virtually impossible for any of them to achieve a majority, but it doesn't matter. Whoever gets the most votes, uh, a, a simple plurality of the electorate, if Gavin Newsom were to be recalled, would be the person who succeeds him in office. And that is really fun because uh, nobody is running on the Democrat side. I mean, virtually nobody. There are, there are a few uh, fringe candidates. Um, we'll talk more about some of them in a few minutes. But there's virtually nobody contesting on the Democrat side. The Democratic Party is actually urging people not to vote on the second question, uh, a strategy that has also confused many people and uh, for example, Assemblymember Lorena Gonzalez, uh, who represents the San Diego area, said that she had questions about that strategy after having the experience of attempting to explain it to friends and family too late, basically. <laughs> um, so now, you know, the, the, the question is, who is actually going to get the most votes out of this entire candidate field? Polls suggest that that person might be Larry Elder, a Republican who is being asked to step aside by other Republicans in this race who are less popular than him because his views on uh, on women, minorities, et cetera, I mean, he, he is a Republican, are extremely retrograde. Um, but even by those standards, the other Republicans in the race have said that he's too fringe and that they don't want to be they don't think that he is viable, setting aside that he is, again, polling better than they are. By quite a margin. By by significant margin. Um, some of the other Republican candidates include uh, Kevin Faulkner, John Cox, uh, who ran for governor previously. All of these people are, are polling in the single digits. Um, very few people are, not, are polling above the single digits. And Larry Elder is one of them. So we're in a situation where this um, this person who is too French for the California Republican Party potentially has a path to become 
the next governor of California. So familiar, so familiar from another race. It sounds so familiar. Um, It it does all sound like it it, it could play out in the worst conceivable way. I mean, to extend it a little bit further, the the actual worst case scenario that many people have brought up online is that California uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is elderly and um, has had at least one significant news article questioning before all the recall stuff happened, questioning whether or not she was potentially experiencing symptoms of dementia and senility, uh, could potentially be forced to step down from office or or worse prior to the end of the, the term of a governor, Larry Elder, giving him as California's governor the ability to appoint unilaterally a new senator. We just saw this happen with Uh, Alex Padilla when Kamala Harris went to the White House. So uh, conceivably you could see Senator Devin Nunes. And while everyone likes making fun of him suing the cow or or whatever, um, presumably you would not like it that much if uh, if that was the reason why the Republicans suddenly had a majority in the Senate. That's, I mean, this is basically the mechanism for all this. Let's talk about what, how, how, how we ended up in this position uh, what do voters need to know going forward? Who wants to go first? What 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 is the what what got us here? To what specifically? What got us to the point where Gavin Newsom is polling at even on the recall question? Yeah, this is this was like a topic about when the recall should be held. And remember, at first we thought it was going to be in the fall, mm-hmm. and we thought it was going to be like in November. And then I guess there was a choice made to move it as early as possible because if he was doing well on, say, COVID stuff and the numbers were looking good, um, we should get it in as soon as possible while things are going good before things start to go bad again. I thought that was kind of the... You know, the vibe is to ride the wave when we thought things were going to be doing good. I honestly don't even know that they thought that things would go bad in the future. It's more, I thought it felt more like it was things are going well. I mean, we had, of course, the the press conferences, California's roaring back, right. et cetera. That those was the, the messaging from the minions, the governor, the minions um, at the so press so conference, the trolls. Um, now the, the trolls, the, the are IRL trolls, at the bridge. Um, the, the, that it seemed like the decision was made to move the recall up from November to September because you just don't even want to have to govern with the recall hanging over. It was like, we're going to beat this. Let's move it up as fast as possible. Then we can go back to doing right. whatever also, else like, we want. Wildfires, maybe. I don't know. There are all there's season, yeah. there's seasonal changes that happen as the year. So maybe if it's like you but they were projecting, the worst of it. They were projecting we're bad, not worried right about this at all. Polling was suggesting that there was not reason for no. them to be worried about it as vaccinations increased throughout the state and the economy rebounded the enormous surplus that was then turned into direct payments back to Californians. And now people are, people are actually pretty split on this. Send out another payment like right now, maybe it would be good. (laughs) Just cash. Yeah. I mean, I, the polling has been very surprising, but again, I mean, more surprising and and maybe not has been just like the sudden rise of Larry Elder. I mean, people know have known who he is for a long time. And I think like people um, in 
in LA in particular, where he has been on the air for ever. I don't know. Is he like a is he like a podcast like? I actually didn't. I don't know him. I know other conservative hosts for like local radio. Yeah. but Larry Elder is not somebody that. And I've he almost didn't get on the ballot because of with. some tax. He he had to he had to like you had to give your tax returns or something, and he didn't have them at first, and then he like was able to get on. So he almost didn't even get on it. Mm-hmm. And then this like stratospheric rise, which in many ways I think stratospheric to the middle Scott, teens. Just let me <laughs> let me be scared for at least a couple more. Oh weeks, no, you, sh- but- you should be scared. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm trying to contextualize in terms of his popularity. Yes. It, it, you Name should recognition. Be, you I should don't be know, scared you know? because you can win this race with. Just that with sixteen percent of the vote, sixteen percent of the vote. But that is where he's at. It's right. not like he has even Trump levels of right. support. But it, but just having like this person who I think has been aided a lot by the conversations that we've been having here in LA with like the sheriff wanting to be tough on mm-hmm. you know uh, Venice homelessness and with a lot of these groups of people who even some of them say that they're like liberal but then they also like move towards the support of this person and so i think a lot of the conversations that are being had right now are just pushing you know you see the same like cycles of like masks vaccines like homelessness ma- you know it's just kind of like this yeah. just keeps getting brought up and he keeps popping into the news cycle even if he's waving a gun at his ex-girlfriend or whatever it still keeps like popping in you know i feel like i i don't know i mean the the larry elder phenomenon as troubling as it is and as much as none of us want to have even so so to to clarify should Gavin Newsom be recalled regardless of who takes its his place but let's say it's Larry Elder that person would be in office until the conclusion of Gavin Newsom's term which would be next year so um, we, we are, I mean, as soon as the recall is over, we go almost immediately back into a cycle of elections and campaigning. It's, it is beyond uh, the realm of credibility that a Larry Elder, once elected as governor through the recall process, could actually win in a, in a general election. There's just, there's very little possibility that that could happen. Um, so in in the universe where this happens, which may be our universe for for all I know, um, that Governor Larry Elder would be in place for one year probably, um, and and be a lame duck governor from the time that he took office. Now, having said that, there's obviously still considerable damage that you can do while you are uh, at the reins of the the largest economy in the country. And its most populous state, but what what I think is is important to note is that regardless of the the Larry Elder phenomenon and how he a- achieved his spot as the apparent front runner, the cycle that you're talking about, Alyssa, vaccines, masks, homelessness, appears to be exactly what is dragging Gavin Newsom down. Right, like that. That I feel like is a lot accounts for a lot of what has happened in recent months to make Gavin Newsom particularly vulnerable as the closing weeks of this recall campaign uh, take place. Because, you know, the the Newsom campaign has actually had him go out and do, I mean, things that uh, on the left people were very angry about 
images of him doing a sweep, like personally sweeping a yeah. homeless homeless encampment. Uh, the images of which are uh, really just kind of jarring, pretty grotesque, pretty. Yeah. Uh, the the and the politics behind and underlying them are are pretty grotesque as well. But the, what we have, I think. What we have to assume is that what Gavin Newsom is hearing is that actually the wave of homelessness, uh, the 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 wave of anti-homeless reactionary sentiment, which is exemplified in Los Angeles and also in San Francisco, all of these minor recalls that we're seeing of the San Francisco DA, the LA DA, various city council members, is emblematic of uh, the the sentiments that are actually causing people, even if they're registered Democrats and won't be voting for, presumably won't be voting for Larry Elder, um, that those are reasons why they are voting against Gavin Newsom to remain in office because he's perceived as uh, the head of a party that is not doing things reactionaries want to see them do. I guess what kind of surprised me early on when it became clear that the recall was going to happen was the extent to which the Democratic Party of California and Mr. Newsom just wanted to pretend that it wasn't going to happen. They just yeah. the, the strategy was just entirely ignore it and just assume that nothing is going to occur and well maybe it will go away. Okay, it didn't go away. But like I also think that there's a level of like I don't know, not misunderstanding, maybe just I, just ignorance on the part of like the state Democratic Party um, and like the Newsom world of understanding that he's like there's a lot of people who are Democrats who do not like Gavin Newsom mm-hmm. for like many very good reasons. Like I, he's he's the sort of um, like his candidacy and and I guess the way the Newsom machine works, and I think we're seeing it right now in the recall is the is the sort of like. I don't know. It, it's it's very it's very much of like like California media politics, where you put in you put the coin into the media machine by media, and you can be guaranteed some amount of votes. Which like it is true that demographically California is a less Republican place than it was many years ago. But I think it's I really think our state Democratic Party is very naive in thinking that simply because it's less Democrat, it's more, or simply because it's less Republican, it's more Democrat. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that's true at all. And I think, I mean, we see this in the state legislature where it's like, sure, people are Democrats, and but but like they're they're the position, like the votes are not ostensibly quote unquote liberal, right? Like, and and I think that's, I think I think you're. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? But like, it's. I mean, I, I really I, I couldn't say. Um, but I think it's a very. I don't think the. I mean, everybody in in national politics talks about the extent to which the part the two party binary system is not representative of like the big swaths of American public opinion, and that's all like magnified here in California too. And has been for a very long time. But I also just, it's like, I think it's, I think it's the, the calculation that our state Dem party made that we're just going to assume that people are going to show up and vote no on the recall because obviously why wouldn't they? I worry that that, that they just assumed that they just made him like they were just wrong. And like, and like, that's now what we're seeing because Gavin and that in the pool, then the polls, which is by now, like 
toss a coin. That's that's where the pull, like who knows how pull, like polls are polls. Like who like that's a yeah that's a thing. But it's I think it's a I think it's a like I think to a lot of California that's very stressed and economically marginalized. Gavin Newsom, product of like the Getty world, going to do his lunch at the French Laundry is a it's just not exciting. So then we have to just do the thing where we hold our noses and vote no on the recall because like, oh my God, Senator Devin Nunes, I cannot, I, I, that's, but like, mm-hmm. like it's, it's also to the point where it's like, okay, sure. Like if I had like hundreds of millions of dollars to buy media, the only thing that I would do would be run ads that say, do you want the, do you want there to be a Republican Senate majority? Because that's yeah. the only thing that's motivating me to vote no on that. It has nothing to do with Gavin Newsom. Right. Because And that I don't actually like seems like that actually seems like a another significant miscalculation. As the head of the California Democratic Party, the the highest elected official there, it seems like the Dems did not want to indicate that there was any sort of softness of support for Gavin Newsom, which, I mean, he is being recalled. So I feel like, you know, you can try and paper over that as much as you want, but um, but clearly that is something that you should probably own up to and deal with. Instead, you know, we have this thing where it's like, it's a very, they're putting on this very uh, publicly brave face, don't vote on question two, just leave it blank. Uh, vote no on the recall, um, and yeah, giving basically no no thought to the type of strategy that you're talking about, where you would actually say this is important. This has an important strategic value, even if you're not a fan of Gavin Newsom. It's sort of just been like we're all behind our governor a hundred percent, and that messaging is probably leaving out or leaving cold a lot of people who just don't care that much about the governor, which I would imagine is a lot of even registered Democrats, myself included. And and so you you end up in a situation where the messaging is, is missing the mark and the Democratic Party's positions are, I think, confusing a lot of people. One thing that I will say is all of the polling deals with questions of likely voters. Um, and one of the only things I think that there's any reason to feel a little bit good about right now is that the engagement level on, obviously, on the Republican side is through the roof and the engagement level on the Democratic side has been very low. So you have a situation where likely voters, that that coterie is skewed towards Republicans significantly at this point. As Democrats become more engaged and more concerned about this race, which is happening, definitely, um, there is room for the likely voters' demographic to shift more towards what would be the average California voter, which would not be voting yes on recall. That is something that can happen. The Republican engagement can't really go any higher than it already is the Democratic engagement uh, certainly can, and I think probably is. So if there's any silver lining here, it would be that. Although, I mean, again, the prospect of of just saying, uh, as you know, basically everyone in in, in uh, left politics in the state is doing, you need to hold your nose and do this. Um, that that might not be enough to motivate some people. 
I, I'll also say, you know, from the from the perspective of other people, I've been looking at other people who are supporting various other recall campaigns that aren't necessarily Gavin Newsom. A lot of them are saying online anyway that they are not de- not decided, but are strongly considering recalling Gavin Newsom. With, I mean, so if you if you look into the mind of of one of these people, what they're basically saying is. I don't the the California legislature is too politically radical and so if we have uh if we have a Republican governor then they just can't do anything for the next year and that's fine with me like he'll just he'll, they'll just veto everything it'll just be political logjam I don't care um and then and then next year you vote for somebody who is a centrist. I mean, the, these are basically It'll the calculations. It'll probably be Gavin Newsom again. It'll probably be Gavin Newsom again. I mean, but the, the, these are the calculations that that people are making who are supporting other recall campaigns. So it's a, it's certainly a dangerous prospect. Uh, the the question is, as it so frequently is in in uh, large scale politics, is why is the why is the only solution ever to like cater to the most far right voices with it? Cause it's like these, uh, like these people are not swayed as far as I've been able to tell by Gavin Newsom going out and throwing a person's belongings in the trash. They're like, Oh yeah, he's doing this now for the cameras. People have a very cynical view of, of politicians in general and Gavin Newsom specifically, but they they don't. They are not looking at this and saying, "Oh, he's doing what I want." And meanwhile, on the other side, on the other side, you have uh, the more progressive and left leaning voices that are like, "Yeah, this is terrible. This is like, wh- what the fuck are you doing?" And and it does align more with their expectations for what the governor is is actually doing with his power. So it seems to be, uh, you know, sort of like a, a double edged sword. But you're like getting stabbed by both of the edges. So we have the, <laughs> that's a metaphor for <laughs> many things in our state. So we have the question number two. We didn't really talk just about just the few other people on there. A lot of uh, listeners have asked us about what to yes, do. Yes, a lot of people two. have asked us what to do. And I've seen Thank so many people giving different types of advice. Um, and I should note that the LA Times editorial board you know, made this very passionate case for, yeah, Newsom gets some things wrong, but we shouldn't take him out of office. But, and pointing out all the people who are definitely not qualified to, or shouldn't be in office, but they made a recommendation to vote no, of course, but then to fill in number two with Kevin Falconer, who they would say would be the least bad and could actually like govern effectively um, if needed. Um, And I'm going to say no to that as well. I mean, I do not think that you want to throw the state into Republican hands in any way, even if you think that he is someone who has run a city somewhat capably he is a Republican. I mean, one, there are no good Republicans. Two, this is a person who I don't, I really, it doesn't matter to me how much you hold yourself out as the model of the responsible Republican. The fact that you could be in California and hold on to that party affiliation. John Lee, city council member from the 12th district, <laughs> abandoned the Republican <laughs> party. 
Kevin Faulkner is still a, a proud Republican. I did, no, absolutely not. Yeah, I, I would not a never, good idea. Especially, I mean, and what you're gonna you're gonna be one of the two percent of people that are gonna vote for Kevin Faulkner. God, yeah, that's not. Can gonna you happen. imagine? Okay, so I oh, and interestingly, I got like a text. It said um, Kevin. Pathrath? There's lots of Kevins. I don't know how to say. Yeah, there's too Kevin, many Kevins. Kevin Pathrath. Path, Pathrath. Now, now, now we've given him name recognition. Pathrath. He's going to win. But it says, whether you're a yes or no on recall, vote for a strong common sense JFK style Democrat. So now there's this window where people are like, oh, we understand your ambivalence here and let us just try to re- recommend this person for you. I don't know who this person is or any type of um, policy you know, proposals. The other person that a lot of people are saying to vote for is Angeline, who is compelling. <laughs> great, she's just her great housing way platform to really. Yeah. <laughs> she's getting my vote. I don't she's, care. She's always on the ballot the, of all the, types. The, the thing that is wild to me is that the LA Times or or anybody else could think that if recall goes through, we are getting a responsible choice. We're not. No. You might as well vote for the person who's actually saying good things and probably has no clue how to do or implement any of them, which is Angeline. And also the person who, if elected, might actually encourage the legislators to do something to change this process so that this won't happen <laughs> again. Although Arnold I'm just Schwarzenegger- gonna write, That's what I'm going to write in. Famously, Arnold Schwarzenegger did not. I mean, that that yeah. selection was not enough to get that. I mean, maybe yeah. this yeah. is- Maybe maybe 20 years from now, Angeline will have her own center at Finally. USC yeah. where she is- be, where she is a well-respected political mind. Yes. I, don't, I don't know. So I, I can guarantee you I'm not voting for the landlord influencer, Kevin Pathrath <laughs> or uh, Kevin Faulkner. So no or, Kevins or, or, or Kevin Kylie. No Kevins. So Right, Kevin Kylie, head of the <laughs> California Republican Party. No, also no. <laughs> so no Kevins, no no Johns, um, no, uh, no Larrys. So is that... What are you going to do? Write write in a candidate. What what do we do here? Arnold. Oh, oh, going back to Arnold. I don't know. No, I'm Just, I'm anyway. voting for Angeline. You're I, doing like Angeline. I said, it doesn't it does not matter. There, if if the recall happens, there is not actually going to be something good that comes out of it. But you feel strongly about filling in the second question, is what you're saying? Definitely fill in the second question. Absolutely. All right. I don't know. Everybody, every single person in my life who I ask has a different answer. I know. This is why we're here. Yeah. We're here to help. And uh, it's continuing. I, I don't know. Angeline is compelling. I liked her Twitter video on housing. I can write in the lieutenant governor's name, Eleni. maybe. I was hoping that the prophecy where Gavin just resigns and then she becomes governor before the recall, because that would negate yeah, that the would recall. End it. And then both us and New York would both have women governors at the same time. Yeah, that would be great. For just a very short amount of time. (laughs) (laughs) What would, I mean, I would, my level of concern is like, they should actually do that. Like, that's that's where I am on this. Like, you could just truly just torpedo. He's so selfless. Yeah. Not (laughs) Newsom style. No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so anyway, yes, we obviously are not 
making an endorsement on the second question, I do encourage people to vote for somebody, but we, you know, definitely vote for the retention of the current governor if you wouldn't like to not see us be vote vote no on the first one that's the one that's that's the vote no on recall well how about just really vote and get a bunch of other people to vote who maybe don't feel like voting because you're right this is going to be a test of our um you know apathetic Mm -hmm. uh electorate i'm so glad there's a rigorous get out the vote uh campaign here on the couple couple weeks before the election which takes place in September. So make sure that you get your ballot returned uh, early. Don't wait. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 188, uh, a really cheerful one. <laughs> cheerful oh, note for a lot here. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're really glad to have you listening. Thank you for supporting us. Again, if you can join the Sepulveda Pass, that's uh, patreon.com slash LA podcast or support us on thelapod.com. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thank you. Bye.